0: So our text for the evening is going to be Genesis chapter 35, so um, please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 35. And here we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob and considering the faithfulness of God to his promises um, to Jacob and to us. Now this message is for you if you've ever wondered how the promises of God relate to our obedience or sometimes lack thereof. And it is for those who have struggled to believe God when we do not see him working as we think he might should. So Genesis chapter 35 reads this. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed to himself, revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak tree below Bethel. So he called its name Alon-Bachuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with them. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Gracious God and Redeemer, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for the receiving of your word that you would transform our lives through it, that we may taste and see and know that you are good. And we ask this in the everlasting name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the many great verses in the Bible that talk about God's faithfulness to his promises comes to us in Numbers 23, 19, and it says this. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? There is one promise that moves all of history, that is past and yet to come, and that is God's promise of redemption. Nothing in this world passes by that does not serve the one grand reality that God created this world and promises to save it. And to carry out this magnificent promise, God uses us, the church, to subdue the earth with the gospel of Christ that all may worship the God who redeems. And so this evening we consider the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises to us. How God is faithful even when we are not. How the promises of God are not like the promises of man. And how we are to be faithful when God's promises appear to be far off. Now Genesis 35 is really the culmination of the Jacob story that begins in Genesis chapter 25. And so if we are going to mine any gold out of this text, we have to begin at the beginning of Jacob's story. In Genesis 25, Isaac, a son of Abraham, and Isaac's wife Rebekah find themselves pregnant. Now, during the pregnancy, God told Rebekah that there are two nations in her womb and that they will be divided, and contrary to custom, the younger is going to serve. I'm sorry, contrary to custom, the older is going to serve the younger. And now the twins are born, and Esau comes out first, but closely behind is Jacob, grasping the heel of Esau. And so they call his name Jacob, one meaning of which is the one who grasped the heel. Now, this is probably not as creative as some of our modern names today, but nonetheless, Jacob is going to live up to his name. And soon after this, on one occasion, Jacob tricks his brother Esau into selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. And on another occasion, Jacob is going to trick his father Isaac into stealing Esau's blessing as the firstborn son. Now, it is is at this point that Esau plots to kill Jacob. But Rebekah, upon hearing this news, sends Jacob to her uncle Laban to take a wife until Esau calms down. And as a parting word, Isaac says to Jacob as he gets ready to flee, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Now, the blessing of Jacob begins his multi-year journey away from home. And on his way to see Laban and Mary, one of his daughters, he stops in a land to rest. And this is the place of Bethel. This is the text that Zida read for us earlier. And it is at this place that God gives the promise of Abraham to Jacob. And Jacob responds that if God is faithful, then he would become Jacob's God. And as Jacob leaves Bethel to go see Laban, and after many years of trickery between Jacob and Laban, and marrying um, Rachel, God calls Jacob back to the land of his fathers and says, I will be with you. Now Jacob, no doubt fearing um, of his encounter with Esau, who he hasn't seen in about 15 years, he's hesitant to begin his journey. And in that final trick to live up to his name, he tries to soothe his brother before meeting him. But to his surprise, Esau embraces him. But instead of going home, which is what we all thought Jacob should have done because God has called him there, he goes to a place called Succoth to build a house. And the contrast is unmistakable. Instead of returning to Bethel, which is the house of God, he goes to Succoth to build his own house. Now it was during the same time of continued disobedience in Genesis chapter 34 that Jacob's daughter Dinah travels to meet um, what the text says is the woman of the land, and there she is defiled. And filled with anger, Jacob's sons plundered the nearby cities in anger the Canaanites and Perizzites. And at this point, in Genesis chapter 35, we have a Jacob who is still wandering from God, who is walking in disobedience and is now fearing for his life. And as we look at verse 1 in chapter 35, the first lesson from this text is this. Because God is faithful to his promises to us, we must recognize his faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. We must recognize his faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. Now it is far too easy to pass over these remarkable words. It is in Jacob's distress, after many wandering years and at the brink of battle in a foreign land... In the midst of chaos, Jacob hears the familiar voice of God saying, Arise, go to Bethel. Several years prior, God promised that he would both be with Jacob and keep Jacob, regardless of where Jacob ended up. And so here God is showing his faithfulness to him. And just as a voice of a distant spouse turns miles to inches, so too the voice of God brings close the wandering heart. The significance of the familiar voice of God to Jacob is just as significant as the command, the command to go to Bethel. Bethel is the place where God revealed himself to Jacob. It is the place where God gave Jacob the promise of Abraham and the personal promise that God would be with him and keep him. And it is the place where Jacob vowed that if God was faithful, then he would become Jacob's God. But Jacob's longtime disobedience acted as a road away from God. In fact, Jacob would spend about 15 years outside of the land God promised. But even when Jacob was far from God, God was not far from Jacob. When Jacob was poor, God made him rich in livestock. When he had no children, God opened the womb. When Jacob was confronted by Esau, he melted Esau's heart before Jacob. He was faithful in the midst of Jacob's faithlessness. And still in a distant land, God calls his child back to himself. Now God's command is just not to go back to Bethel. It is to go to Bethel and build an altar. God calls Jacob back to worship. This altar is to be built to the God who appeared to him when he was fleeing from Esau. Jacob is not just to build an altar to God, but he is to build an altar to the God who appears to him. Church, the people of God do not just worship a God. They worship the God who has made himself known. God has revealed himself to Jacob as El Shaddai, that is God Almighty. He is the God who keeps, the God who blesses, the God who is there, the God who answers in his distress therefore in the gracious character of our God rather than calling Jacob and listing his sins God reminds Jacob of what he has done for him where Jacob might be tempted to think of his failures God is focused on Jacob's redemption and what Jacob will learn is that the very place he was most reluctant to go is the very place he most needed to be Jacob did not see the many blessings of his life that God was giving him. It took a tragedy and God's call to bring him back. And when we find ourselves wandering from God, we should know that God is faithful to us, that he has not abandoned us, that he is always calling us back to him. But it is the unfortunate reality that the Jacob experience is the common experience of the Christian life. Whether it is short wanderings or long journeys to the wasteland of empty pleasures. But thanks be to God that he calls to us at the end of our roads. That he calls to us in the darkest of nights. God is calling the wandering heart back to him. But we must be willing to make the journey, You see, when God calls Jacob back to Bethel, Jacob still has to make the ascent to Bethel. He still has to come out of the wayward life to leave the pleasures of sin, to leave the allurement of fulfillment. It is the road we are all called to walk. It requires humility because we must face the fact that we failed, that we've turned away from God. We have to acknowledge that we were wrong. We must face the fact that behind us is a path of destruction that sin leaves behind. It often hurts us and others. But we serve a gentle God, church. We serve a kind God, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the road to God is, is never alone. We are on this journey together. We are on a pilgrimage to the celestial city, each with our own wounds from sin, but with a God who promises to bind the wounded. And like Jacob, when we need encouragement, we must arise and go to Bethel. We must go to the place where we first met God, or where we are reminded of his presence The place where we went after God in the wilderness, where we were satisfied to be denied by others, satisfied to be disowned so long as we might dwell in his presence. And when we go back to that place, we need to dwell there. We need to meditate on what God did for you there. And you should ask God to silence the passions of your former ways, to show you the greater pleasure of his presence, to brighten your eyes to the glory of his majesty, to remind you of the stories that displayed his faithfulness to you. You are to ask God to herald over you his wondrous deeds, to parade his gospel before your very eyes. And for me, what this looks like... um, is when I go back to a time when I had first become a Christian, and this was probably seven or eight years ago, and I started reading through my Bible, because um, I just wanted to know, I was like, am I, am I missing anything? I, w- I wanted to know everything. And I was not content just to, to have a Bible in front of me and not know what it says. And as I'm reading through the New Testament, I come to 2 Corinthians 5, and the most, one of the most beautiful verses that I've ever read To that point, and it says, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this verse just makes me weep. And for me, I go back to this time and I reminisce on what God did for me, how I, for the first time, understand what Jesus did for me on the cross. We have seen that God is faithful in spite of our faithlessness. Now we move to consider the faithfulness of God and how it compels in comparison to the promises of this world. And here we move to consider verses 2 through 7. And the main takeaway, the main point here is that because God is faithful to his promises, we must not give ourselves to other promises Because God is faithful to his promises, we must not give ourselves over to other promises. Before this time in our text, this is exactly what Jacob did. He chased after other promises. Jacob's whole life has been an attempt to obtain something that had already been promised to him. God has promised Jacob several times at this point that he was going to inherit a land, that he was going to have many children, that he was going to be prosperous. But instead of trusting God, he trusted in the work of his hands. But in Genesis chapter 35, we have a Jacob that's turned. We have a renewed Jacob. And so in verses 2 through 3, we get Jacob's command to his family. And in verses 4 through 5, the family's response now, what does, Jacob says, what does Jacob say to his family? He says, put away the foreign gods and purify yourselves. These gods are probably the gods that Rachel had took when they were fleeing from Laban, if we recall that story. And it also probably includes the gods that Jacob's sons took after plundering the city following Dinah's defilement. Um, Although this was actually not even part of God's command to Jacob, Jacob knew that the gods were irreconcilable with the exclusive worship that he needed to give to the one true God. And so Jacob, as a spiritual leader of his home, gathers these gods and buries them under a tree and then commands his family to purify themselves and change their clothings. Now, the purification rituals and the change of clothing signifies a moral transformation. See, the God of Abraham and Isaac is becoming their God. And it is only after they, can put the, they put these gods away and change their clothes can they go to Bethel. And as they travel to Bethel, the text says that a terror of God overshadows Jacob's entourage and immobilizes any of the cities around. The point being that what happened to Dinah is not going to happen to Jacob's family. So what are we to learn from these verses 2 through 7? That when we wander away from the promises of God, we are wandering to the promises of this world. Jacob's weak leadership led his family astray, and his family led him astray. And we might not carry idols in our tents like they did, but we carry them in our hearts And Jacob knows, as he has always known, that they are contrary to the will of God and must be put away. There is no place for any false gods in the presence of the true God. We cannot have a foot in the temple of Satan and in the temple of God. We are either fully indwelled with the spirit of the living God or indwelt by the spirit of this world. And the conversion of the heart is not sincere if it is not universal. Now, I'm going to take a guess here that none of us have a statue of Baal in our living rooms. I mean, and neither do I, as Ida would probably kill me. Um, But certainly we have other idols in our lives. Um, And an idol is anything that substitutes God. It's anything that pulls our trust away from him and puts it somewhere else. And so whether that is trusting in our 401k instead of the provision of God, maybe it's obsessing over our body image, Um, or over a nice car or a nice house so that we can be affirmed by others rather than seeking the affirmation of God? Maybe, for me, it's the desire to be in control, to look like I have it all together. If it comes before God, it becomes a false idol, and it will not satisfy. And we must ask ourselves, do we find ourselves pitching our tents Near Canaan, or pitching our tents in the house of God. Now, to keep our eyes on the promises of God, we must remember this that the promises of God are not like the promises of man. They are far greater, far grander than we could ever know. You see, Jacob thought that he had a big family and a lot of wealth. But if he could only see the millions of people that would come from him, if he could only see the height of the Israelite kingdom under Solomon, if he only knew that God would rescue the world through our Savior, through the lineage of Jacob, he would look back at his wanderings and to see the foolishness of what he was doing. There's a reason the Apostle Paul says God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Because when we trust in the promises of God, he takes us to heights and depths that no one can fathom. When we trust in the promises of God. There's a a character produced in the Christian life that only God can give. When we trust in the promises of God, there's not an obstacle that we cannot overcome, not a bondage that cannot be broken, not an evil that will not work for our good, and there is no dead body that will not be raised when we trust in the promises of God. Now, there's an incorrect understanding of these verses, of that is a sobering reality um, that you may have heard. And there's some Christians that might say that we need to somehow clean ourselves up before we come to God. That we need to um, fix ourselves before we can approach God. That we must purify ourselves somehow before coming in his presence. And they would say, look, Jacob had to put away the gods. They had to change their clothing before coming with God. And so this is what we must do. But what this view misses is that what keeps us from God is sin. And sin is a rebellion against God, and we can do nothing about it apart from his forgiveness. Therefore, there is not a deed in this world that we can perform in and of ourselves to get right with God unless it involves the plunging of our soul into the flood of Christ's blood. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You see, Jacob was not trying to clean up his act before coming to God as if he could wash his sins away. Putting away the gods and changing his clothes was not going to atone for 15 years of wandering. He puts away the gods and changes his clothes to rededicate his worship to God in repentance to the one who has already accepted him. We don't clean ourselves up before coming to God, church. He cleanses us through faith in Christ. And then he commands us to walk in obedience. Now, it is a challenge in the Christian life to bury the things that are contrary to God. It's another thing to keep those things buried. Too often, it is our experience that when we bury our idols or bury those things that are contrary to God, we tend to go back to visit them because God has somehow not satisfied us or maybe he hasn't fulfilled his promises on our timeline. And so we go back and lay flowers on the grave where we buried our idols and we might play around with the idea of what it looks like to maybe dig up these old passions and we entertain that thought for a few moments. But how do we keep our eyes on God and not on the idols of death? And here we're going to turn to consider what God teaches us in this text of how we can be faithful while we wait for God's promises. And this is the last point for tonight, and it is this. Because God is faithful to his promises, we must learn to be faithful between the promise and its fulfillment. We must learn to be faithful between the promise and its fulfillment. This section records God's first words to Jacob since his arrival in Bethel. And here we're considering verses 9 through 15. God appears to Jacob and says to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. But God has already renamed Jacob when he wrestled with him before meeting Esau. So Why the renaming again? Well, God is reminding Jacob that he returns to the promised land not as Jacob, but as Israel. Jacob is not only called to bury the foreign gods, but he is called to bury his former life. Jacob, who changed, Jacob, who charged his family to change their clothes, are now called to live up to Jacob's new name. In this reality, to be honest, should come at no surprise to us, for how often do we forget our new name? How often must we be reminded that we belong to God and not to this world? So after God reminds Jacob of his new name, he reminds him of the Abrahamic promise that he has already given him. And in the text, it says, I am God Almighty, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give the land to your offspring after you. God does not start with the promise, but he starts by a self-identification. He says, I am God Almighty. Before the command of God is the revelation of God. There is to be no misunderstanding of how Jacob is to carry out God's command. Unlike before where Jacob took things into his own hands, Jacob is to carry out the command of God with the power of God and the almightiness of God. In other words, Jacob is powerless unless God binds his power and almightiness to Jacob's obedience. And Jacob is commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Now with 13 children from four women, how much more numerous would one want to actually be? Um, And in a few more verses, we see that Jacob's wife is actually going to pass away. So this seems rather an odd place for God to call Jacob and tell him to multiply. But what God has in mind is not more children, but what he has in mind is a nation. God has in mind a nation. And not just a nation, but a company of nations. And not just children, but kings will come from Jacob. You see, as long as Jacob was focused on obtaining the promises of God on his own timeline, he was never going to see what God had really intended for him. While Jacob was focused on children, God was focused on making him into a company of nations. Jacob needed to hear the promises of God again and again to get himself from looking at what was in front of him and to look at who was above him. Oh, church, if we would only lift up our eyes to the author and perfecter of our faith, how different would our lives look? if we can only turn our eyes from this world, from the desires of entertainment, from the allure of sexual fulfillment, from the desire of affirmation by others, and turn to look at the promises of God again and again, what would become of us? What would it look like to trust that God will never leave us or forsake us? To trust that he is good and that he is is for you. To trust that he is really, really, absolutely forgiven your sins. That you are free from guilt and condemnation. That you can trust God, that he sympathizes in our weaknesses. To trust that he will make all grace abound to us so that in all things we may abound in good works. To trust that we will be raised in the last day and dwell with him. For eternity, Jacob needed to hear the promises of God repeatedly so that he could learn to live in the tension of promise and fulfillment. And to be faithful while we wait, we must recall the promises of God and trust. Church, the faithfulness of God to his promises is our only hope in this life. God remains steadfast even when we do not. And his promises are sweeter than any promises this world could ever offer. In our waiting for their fulfillment, we must recall the promises of God more than we recall the promises of this present age. The greatest expression of God's promise was the promise to send his son to live the life we were to live, to die the death that we were to die. And it is in Christ that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen, will you trust him this day?